But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi here to talk about headship, what that means in the Bible, in the broad aspect, and in the narrow aspect. Zelwyn, how's it going? Things are going real well. I've been up to my elbows changing oil lately, which is always a good feeling, but otherwise, we just had a nice rain, and things are looking pretty green out here, which is Always a good feel. So, do you go with a full synthetic, or what do you what are you putting in there? <laughs> to be honest, I I do kind of a blend and kind of whatever is you know works. I'm not too particular about my oil, I guess. Right, and I'm sure that you know you're logging in the miles, so you know well that the three thousand mile change is no longer really a rule to live by, but that you can get you know a lot more out of your oil. I'm trying to I'm trying to help you. You're trying. <laughs> I'm helping you, friend. Right. Yeah. No, I. I don't change every two. If I was doing that, I think I'd be doing it about once a month. Right. Or every three, I mean. Yeah, that's the old standby. But, <laughs> you know, modern oils, folks, so they tell me, you know, can do can do much better. And Zelwyn here, who is our circuit rider, is certainly uh, rolling his odometer rather frequently. <laughs> so It is what it is. What about you, Willie? How, how are things out your way? The farmers are able to get the crops in the ground, so we thank the Lord for that. He gave us seasonable weather just a little bit later. And that's all right. Seems like most things are in the ground, though, so we're very, very happy about that. Good. With the rain here, um, we we probably won't get any more rain for a little while, but it's it's always a good feeling to have some. Right. Having too much rain is kind of a foreign experience for me. But anyway. <laughs> well, you know, you hard desert men out there. <laughs> but your sunflower seeds will be great. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so... In this episode, we are going to touch on a bit of a difficult subject for many, because it touches nearly every aspect of our government, both civil and familiar. It's the concept of headship. Now, before we even you know get into how we're going to discuss this biblically, Zelwyn, what is headship? Yeah, that's, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> right. We tend to apply this concept... Almost, I don't want to say exclusively, but very frequently to marriage and talking about how the husband is the head of the wife. But the concept of headship in the Bible is actually much broader than that. And headship in marriage is actually one fairly narrow example of what's going on. God has set up order in his creation, and this order expresses itself in headship in lots of different ways, frankly, that we're going to get into. What, what do you want to add to that, Willie? No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's this principle of authority and consequence that we bristle at. We don't like the idea of authority as fallen creatures, and we also don't like the idea that there are consequences to what our rulers do. Now, we understand that, 
but it's almost as if we're surprised when those in authority over us or those who have headship over us actually affect what happens to us and, and how that works. And we really see the rise and fall of societies based upon the principle of headship. So what we'll do in this episode is we'll start with Adam, the first head, move on into our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk about other kings and things like that. Then eventually, later on in this episode, we will talk about the headship of the family, fathers, mothers, children, and so on. And so we will get full-on first blast of the trumpet via John Knox a little bit later, for those of you who are who are wondering. Maybe we should link to that in the description and just trigger the world. <laughs> it is something that's important. It's It's a principle that we have to understand, or we will not understand original sin. We will not understand Christ's righteousness imputed to us and how that can be justly done. We won't understand much of the Old Testament and the exiles and things like that. And it's something we have to unpack. So we're going to take our time, go through it, and see what we can learn. That being said, our first head, the father of all, was Adam. Now, Zelwyn, who was Adam? Well, Adam is the first man, the crown of creation, the last thing that God creates before resting on the seventh day. And he is the one who is the head of the whole human race. His headship extends to all of us so that what happens to Adam affects every single one of his children, which would include every single one of us. So when Adam himself falls into sin, we fall into sin with him. Now, and this is always the thing that I think we, we sometimes bristle at, some, that we sometimes struggle with. How can Adam's sin be imputed to us? Well, it's exactly because of this principle of headship. Because Adam is the head of the body of humanity, the body which comprises all of us according to the flesh, what happens to him is also what's going to happen to us. Well, let's um, go into Romans 5 just a little bit. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and that one man's Adam, and so death spread to all men, because all sin... For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is most counted where there is no law, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now, of course, the one to come is Jesus, but here we have this idea that because Adam sins, all sin comes into the world, and death reigns over all. Everyone dies as a result of Adam's sin. Both those who have the law, being, you know, the, the Jews that it was revealed to, and those apart mm-hmm. from the law. Everyone suffers from that effect of sin, that punishment for sin, which is death. We are born with a sinful nature, but more than that, we suffer the punishment of sinners because we are all, through our father Adam, sinners. Right. Even as children, even from the womb. And that's what people don't understand. How can... Someone who, in their conception, cannot be held accountable for their actions, be judged by the actions of another man. Well, this is how God has ordered the world. And we're quickly going to see this. If you don't believe, if you think that it's somehow wrong for Adam's sin to be imputed to us, or his sinful nature to be imputed to us, or for us to suffer the punishment of sin because of Adam, 
well, then you would have to agree then it would be wrong for Christ's righteousness to count on our behalf too. Right. Right. Because if it's unfair for you to receive ill, it would be just as unfair, if not more, for you to receive good. Which was Paul's point here. Absolutely. And this is what Paul's going to say. And then he, he actually does continue. The free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following, excuse me, I lost my place here, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the principle of being judged by the one who is our head. Now, Adam, by virtue of being the first man, is the father of all. Christ Jesus, by virtue of being the God-man, now stands over all of creation, of course, as God, but also, you know, we just celebrated the ascension, right? You know, whenever this podcast is being recorded. Christ now sits at God's right hand as both God and man. He is our head. The Christian is judged in him. And Paul in other places also goes on to talk about this. And I I do want to come back to Adam a little bit more specifically. But the, the concept of Christ as the head of his body, the church, Yes is the opposite, basically, of Adam as the head of of the body according to the flesh, of the the body according to all people. So the fact is, is that when we are joined to Christ, we have a transfer of heads. We are changing heads from our old head, Adam, to our new head, Christ, which means we are no longer in the body of death, but we have now been joined to the body of life, the body of Christ. And that's Ephesians 5, which we'll look at a little bit later, but 5.24, the church submits to Christ. And I'm, and I'm really just taking a part of that verse before I get accused of taking it out of context. But it, it, the, the full verse is, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But that's for a little bit later in the show. But that should just show how closely connected all of these concepts are. And that principle for us as Reformation Christians, for us as Lutherans, for us as Protestant in the best word, in the best sense of the word. All I hear all the radio dials turning off now, or all of the people exiting out. No. We believe in that alien righteousness that's imputed to us, and that right. is tied up in this idea of headship. To be judged right. in Christ instead of being judged in Adam. Right. If you want to get down to brass tacks and, and, and think about what the Reformation was fought over, it actually it actually has to do a lot with this. Well, let's get back to Adam then. A little bit. So from Adam comes all the families of the world. And so as soon as he is reproducing, we're having more and more families. Do we see in the Bible, for example, children being punished for the sins of their fathers? All the time, frankly. <laughs> right. And we're using these sin, these, this example of sin because until Christ the Redeemer comes, that's mostly what you see. Although you do see examples of people being blessed for the good deeds of their fathers as well. Which would be like Abraham and, you know, all the nations of the world being blessed in him because he is the father of all who believe in Christ. But, yes, most of the examples of headship in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, do tend to be negative ones because the sins of 
the head are visited upon the body as well, because all become guilty of the same sin, which is exactly what we were saying with Adam. Because Adam sins and because Adam is our head, his sin is also becomes our sin in a very real way. We become right. guilty of his sin and it becomes ours. And so when we encounter this all throughout the scriptures, you see it not only with you know people just being sinners generally, but you actually see it, and this is something I kind of want to dig into a little bit because it interests me a great deal, what I might call smaller bodies or political bodies. Sure. Nations and kingdoms and countries, for example, are judged because of what their rulers do. Right. And let me just frame this a little bit, too, just to get the verse out there, just so that people don't think we're making it up. Numbers 14, chapter 14, verse 18 Everybody knows the first part of this. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving devotion, or the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. And I'll modernize that because I always fall back into King James. But he will by no means clear the guilty, comma, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Right there, you know, you can frame that going, okay, Moses is saying this, and this is kind of, it's like how Moses starts his prayer. So that principle already there, it's in black and white. We can't really get around that. The, The Lord is slow to anger, but the Lord will judge, and he will judge according to the head, and the children actually suffer. A different way of putting this, maybe a way that makes a little bit more sense, too, if someone's still struggling with this is that God doesn't only judge us as individuals. There you go, yeah. God also judges us as groups. You have all kinds of examples of this, and I'll I'll give you a few here. Choose some in particular that I think we should focus on, but just, just to have a few in front of us. In Genesis 12, for example, Pharaoh's house is punished. All the wombs of Pharaoh's house are closed because Pharaoh took Sarai as his wife when he was not supposed to. So you see the sin of Pharaoh, even in his innocence, because he didn't know what he was doing, he didn't know any better because of Abram's sin, but that's neither here nor there. All of the women of that house that belong to Pharaoh are affected as a result. Um, The fertility of the house is closed off until the sin is rectified. You also have Abimelech in Genesis 20 doing the same thing. Achan, or Achan, or however you want to pronounce it, In Joshua 7, because he steals some of the devoted things, Israel as a whole is punished. Now, we would say, what does Achan's sin have to do with Israel? But the point is, is that they weren't being judged specifically as an individual. Because he had taken those things when he wasn't supposed to, that is why this punishment was being visited upon Israel. And the one maybe that I think we can focus on a little bit more closely is, for example, Egypt itself in Exodus 6 and 9 with the the plagues. Pharaoh's hardness of heart is the reason why all of Egypt is punished. Yeah, and and you only get very narrow exceptions, you know, with the few that leave during the actual parting of the Red Sea. But nevertheless, that has nothing to do with all of those who are suffering under the plagues before that as a direct result of what Pharaoh did Pharaoh's hardness of heart, his his obstinacy. Right. And we think, you know, well, that's not fair. And it's like, well, 
Yeah, it kind of is because God hasn't done it. You know, we're kind of getting stepping into Romans nine territory too. You know, how could God do this? Right. And yet God is free to do it. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious. And his providence sometimes, though, appears harsh. It's always, though, to his glory, but also for the good of his people. So it brings about the freedom of his people, and it causes many to suffer. I think an example of this we've, we're, you know, that we've sort of forgotten about in this discussion is, say, Noah, for example. Sure. That's kind of the inverse, though, because you have the, the few saved and the entire rest of the world just drowned. Right. But we don't think of that as being unfair the way we would those suffering, say, the the gnats in Egypt or something like that. Now, for Christians who don't believe in original sin, then I suppose this discussion is kind of without context. But I really don't know what you do with Romans 5, and I don't know what you do you know, with the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And I don't know what you do with the Bible, really, frankly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just there. It's all over the place. Another one I thought of, too, is Isaiah chapter 7 which reads, the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. The point being that one nation can even be the head of another nation. So this this idea of headship is not exclusively, you know, narrowly an individualistic thing, but it is dealing with us as the groups that God has created us in. And kings and rulers, for, the, for that matter, are set up over us as our heads, which is why, I mean, you think of the the kings of Israel, for example, every single one of them was wicked, and they led Israel into sin. That wasn't just because they set up a bad example and they all happened to follow, but because they were the heads of that nation, their sin led everyone else also into sin with them. Including the faithful remnant. Right. See, that's the that's the one of the difficulties there. The the faithful suffer because of the wicked head in the civil right. sense. You know, God doesn't just say, Well, faithful remnant, you were good here, so you're not you're, you're gonna get a pass and all these other people are going into exile. No, they go right along with with all of the other scoffers and everything else because of right. the king. Now, to be sure, in the face of all this, God is still providing. God is often using these things, especially in the case of Israel, to bring them to repentance. That's always there. Nevertheless, they are punished for a time. You know, so the civil punishments, or excuse me, when we talk about civil governments, I think it it's more temporal than eternal, like you see with Adam and Jesus. But it's still a picture of that eternal reality that you find. You know, either judged in Adam, damned forever, judged in Christ, saved forever. And then you see that principle, though, of being judged according to the head played out all throughout Scripture and all throughout history on a smaller scale. All right, we got to take a break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi here, talking headship, biblical headship. So Zelwyn, in our last segment, we broadly went over this idea of being judged in Adam, being judged in Christ, and we saw the examples of people being judged according to civil rulers and suffering spiritual consequences because of that. So we're going to hammer on the law here, but I promise we will get to the gospel very shortly. But let me ask this question, possibly the most controversial of all in this. Does this principle of God punishing citizens for the the sins of their rulers apply today? And I ask this for a simple reason. It's easier for us to look back and say, well, that's how God did it in the Old Testament. Israel was a theocracy, so, you know, there we go. So were the Canaanites to a degree, so were the Egyptians. You know, if we're using that term pretty loosely, but religion and politics so much more intertwined. Now, we live in an enlightened age, post-enlightenment even, whereby (laughs) we have the wall of separation between church and state. So God would surely not cross that. Uh, Except that he does. (laughs) I mean... I don't know how you can how you can say that God did this in the Old Testament, but then, you know, we just know better or he did something different now. He doesn't deal with us as individuals now, but he also deals with us as groups. I mean, that's the whole point of us being redeemed in Christ. We're not redeemed as a bunch of individuals in Christ. We're redeemed as the body, the one body in Jesus. Yeah. But the point is, is that, yes, this principle does still apply because... I don't know how you can look at our situation right now and not say that God is bringing some kind of judgment down upon us. Well, I think this is the interesting thing. We ought not look at judgment simply as miraculous things like plagues, right? Or supernatural events, I mean, like plagues. Often what God does is he leaves us to our own desires. He turns us over to a debased mind. He lets us further harden our hearts. And that might be the judgment that we're seeing now. There's a natural way in which the judgment of God seems to fall upon people. It's God sort of withdrawing his gracious presence, never forsaking the church, of course, the faithful church. But he withdraws his presence, and the people are able to live the way that they want to live, to do as they see right in their own eyes. We have seen the collapse of society and family more than once throughout history because men turned away from God's word. Well, exactly. And I mean, this is this is Romans 1 language. I mean, just straight out of the Bible. And especially like towards the end of that chapter, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, this comes right after a list, a whole laundry list of sins, that comes out of being turned over to the debasing of our minds. And all of the things that I think we're seeing with the collapse of society, with the breakdown of the institutions that are hold, that held it together, I do think God's handing us over. We're being turned over to the natural consequences of our sins. I mean, that's that's, I think, the best way to put it. This is going to happen just because this is what happens to sin and God is not is not preventing it from proceeding. Right. When you're dealing with all of the the junk that's going on right now and I don't even I don't even have to enumerate it. I mean, this stuff is evident to anybody who's paid any attention to the news. This is a clear example of God allowing us to fall into sin. 
you think of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And, and the scoffer goes, oh, well, God made that promise to Israel, but I'm a Christian who believes Christ is the head of the church, and therefore I believe that we are one branch, all of the faithful grafted in. We are new Israel, so this promise can very well apply to us that God would heal the land if it was his will, but if we would seek his face. I'm not a dispensationalist. A lot of, a, a lot of us have become kind of functional dispensationalists, even our antinomian friends. We want to take verses like this and go, well, that's some kind of nonsense pietism. You know, it's, 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 a, it's God from a different place in time. But call me old-fashioned. I, I do believe that a government who honors God will see God lift his countenance upon them. Well, I mean, just just take the Psalms, for example. Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He's not talking just about the individual believer. He's not even just talking about the church. But he's talking about those whom God has set up as kings, as rulers of this world, if they will fear him, if they will recognize Christ, that is a far better thing than one who does not. I don't know how you can argue against that. And even if it's just on a civil level, you know, even if it's just on a very practical level, even if it's just on a what people would see as a superficial level, it does make for a more peaceable existence when the family is intact, when fathers are taught to treat their wives and children with respect, when wives are taught to be Christian wives, when when we see each other as as man and woman and that sort of thing. Society is better when the evildoer is punished, when we teach our children, when we teach our citizens not to break the law, not to steal, not to murder, not to covet, society is better. Just on on a merely civil level, you know, never perfect. We've always had gallows, I understand. But <laughs> you know, nevertheless there is that. Now That's the question, will God bless a superficial religion? Don't really want to get into that. I will get into the fact that there have been devout kings throughout history, and I think that that matters. I think having Christian rulers matters. And this idea that we can be neutral on that, you know, no, every other religion in the world seems to get this except Christians. We're going to be killed by our own niceness, you know? (laughs) You know, forget closed communion. We've got open religion all of a sudden. So we don't want to, you know, we don't want to force our our values on anyone. You know, if we can just agree that what we really need is just is just freedom of religion, we, we can all agree on that principle. No, <laughs> no, we don't all agree on that principle, and that's why you will be overrun. We're going to have to have a reconquista before too long if you're not careful. <laughs> and we're just we're so afraid of this for some reason. There, there's we all become quietist when when confronted. We're not necessarily talking about setting up Calvin's Geneva, but we are talking about this principle that the church largely understood that we would have leaders embrace the gospel, one, for the sake of their own salvation, of course, but also that the faith might flourish and we might live free and peaceably. Well, if you look at the history of the Christian church, yes, there were personal evangelism, and of course, that's always going to happen. It always should happen. But very often when a nation embraced Christ, it was because their rulers embraced him first. Right, right. Right? You you deal with with like St. Olaf, for example, of of Norway, and how after he becomes a Christian, and, you know, never mind whatever you might think his motives might have been, 
he becomes a powerful influence for the Christianization of that country. And I don't see how you can say that that's a bad thing. I just don't get it. (laughs) Right. Well, there are those who rightly see that the church has flourished under persecution. Right. Nevertheless, we we have been taught, rightly, that we pray for peace. We pray not for persecution. We don't seek after martyrdom. We let it come to us. Now, that, So the church flourishes, say, in the Soviet Union. Well, will we now want to re-erect the Iron Curtain for the sake of the church? No, of course not. That's not how, that's not how this works. We, we ought not be wishing and praying for the collapse of Christian society so that the church will somehow flourish under it. The church is always growing. The church is always flourishing insofar as God is always calling his elect home. And that gives us great comfort as we go out and as we live in a world that's fallen. But we don't pray for that. We don't look for that and pretend that God only blesses those who live in countries where the church isn't free to worship in public. We want to be able to share the faith, to preach the gospel in times of peace, just the same as we would in times of war and in times of persecution. So we would pray for leaders that would allow this. You know, we can boast all we want that, well, I'm an American and leaders don't allow me to do anything because I don't have kings. Well, okay, well, when the jackboots come to your door, trust me, they're going to be very persuasive. (laughs) The fact of the matter is you are still under authority. Even in a post-enlightenment constitutional government, you still are duty-bound to obey, whether we like that word or not, what passes for authority in this country, right or wrong. It would be better for you if those people who held these positions of authority, these people who held positions of of power, shared the same faith as you because they would share the same values as you. It's not just a point system here. We're talking about people who would actually view the world in the way that you do, in a way that's not fundamentally opposed to everything you stand for, and more than that, not fundamentally opposed to everything that God stands for. I think it should be pointed out, too, that this is not just a, a, you know, a Blant Karch endorsement of anyone who says, you know, I'm a Christian, so vote for me. There is a difference between a Christian ruler and, a, and someone who's just potentially pretending to be one to pander to you and to, you know, your, your votes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying be a Christian. Don't be dumb. Right. Use your reason and support those men who do have sincere professions of faith. Right. You know, you know, and you're right. That's an excellent point because we tend to just say, well, this guy's got that, you know, he, he pays lip service, you know, to Christianity. Maybe even, maybe even, you know, he puts on his LCMS cap or something, you know, if he's campaigning in Minnesota or Missouri or central Illinois or North Dakota, you know, you never know. <laughs> or never he know. put, he puts on his Baptist trousers when he's down in Alabama, that sort of thing. You know, like certain politicians who adopt a fake Southern accent once they get down there. Not naming names. But uh yeah, you, you you want actual leaders and and that can be that can be hard to find. That doesn't negate the point though. I mean, it is still better to have a Christian ruler than it is to have I mean, that shares your values, that shares your outlook, that worships the same God as you, than to have anything else. If we look at it this way too, all Christian or excuse me, all humans are bound to bend the knee to God Almighty. And they don't get a pass simply because they're elected or born into a public office. It's not as if God is going to come to you, Zelwyn, who, as far as I know, have never held a public office, and say, I'm judging you according to the word. And then he's going to go to your senator and go, I'm judging you according to the statutes of the great state of North Dakota. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just not how that principle works. The principle of headship is first and foremost being judged is is your head being judged by the word of God. Right. And frankly, nothing else really matters at the end of the day. If we haven't already lost the audience here, you know, we have to recognize that this principle works even on, and I'm going to just finish, we'll finish out this segment with this and we'll get to Jesus Christ as the head of the church, probably in the next, in the next segment. But you see this in families and it's, it's tragic. You know that if a father behaves a certain way, the children are more likely to behave a certain way. Right. So that, you know, if you're from a smaller, if you're from a region like me, you know, in the Appalachian Mountains where the clans all know each other, you know, that's C-L-A-N clan for you people <laughs> listening. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the different regions, you can almost just by the surname know what a family is like because those generational curses seem to <laughs> seem to just be there or the generational blessings too. But it is a case of what fathers and mothers pass on to to the kids. That that's another example of this. Another example of the principle that headship actually matters. Right. You know, even apart from the from the judgment of God, headship matters. You know, you gotta have a father. You even see it in nature with wolves and anything else. It's just there. It's so built into creation you cannot escape it. God is a God of order. And and it stands to reason God is our father. Right? Right. There it is, right there. Jesus Christ being not only our Savior, but also an example of what it means to be a son, what it means to be under the Father with relation to authority. You know, when we talk about the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, you know, there's an example we almost forgot. It, it just comes up over and over, and you, you just cannot cannot escape this. Well, maybe to take it back to the political realm just for a little bit longer here to finish out this segment, something also to consider with this is that we as Christians cannot really afford to just kind of withdraw and say, well, it doesn't matter what we do in society because, you know, their society, we're the, we're the church, and we'll just kind of go our own way. The Benedict option does not exist in this dojo. Right. All right. <laughs> to, put it, to put it very bluntly, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the church militant, not the church retreating, if I can avoid it. Only tactical retreats. <laughs> for the time being. Right. But but we should be involved then, especially as Americans, because we have the opportunity to be involved, to work good in our society. Are we still suffering the judgment of that, you know, upon that society? Yes. But that doesn't mean that we, we can't work to bring about change, to benefit. Maybe God is using such a time as this to drive us forward, as it were. Who are we to retreat when the word says go forward? And of course, all that said, too, it's not just a case of simply lobbying for the right things, although lobbyists in a Christian government will probably be outlawed anyway. But <laughs> it's not just a case of lobbying. It's not just a case of merely electing the right people either. It's also a case of praying for them, praying to God right. on their behalf, but often they won't, sincerely meaning that praying not only for their conversion, but for their wisdom, that they would rule and guide, you know, accordingly. Kind of have that Ezekiel feel with this, too, where you have the mark being placed upon those who sigh and groan over the, the desolation in Jerusalem. These people who were still faithful, even in the midst of such idolatry, does not go unnoticed by God. 
it doesn't. God is not forsaking us and saying, well, the church is just going down with with everyone. This is a case of, yes, we are suffering the judgment. Yes, we will probably have to go into exile in some sense. But that doesn't mean that God has gone back on his promises. No, and God is ultimately going to vindicate his people, be it in in history now through, you know, blessing whatever nation we end up in, or possibly more likely when he returns in glory and vindicates all faithful believers of all time. Right. So any final words before we wrap up this segment? I think it's it's important to just remind every you know, just to remind us as Christians to to pray and not to lose heart over what's happening, but also not to be ignorant about what what's happening either. We don't want to have our, our heads in the sand and imagine that we're not suffering some sort of judgment with the, the current situation that we're in. That doesn't mean that we should do nothing. It just means that we can't put on rosy colored glasses either. Right. Yeah. We need to live sober-mindedly and we need to be in the word of God. We should probably just live soberly anyway, but <laughs> we need to be in the Word of God, sober-minded that we may see clearly what God would have us see. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about Jesus Christ as our head and headship in the home here on Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. And we are back, Willie Grills and Zelwyn Heidi, talking headship in the Bible. So we've really hammered this point home about God punishing even the faithful for the sins of rulers, or at least the faithful suffering under the sins of rulers. With all that said, let's now shift gears and talk about the hope that the Christian has, even when he suffers, under a wicked ruler. The hope the Christian has is that ultimately he is not judged according to that head, but judged according to the one who is head over all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Zelwyn, tell me a little bit about Jesus Christ as our head. <laughs> tell me a little bit about Jesus. <laughs> I'm a Christian. Yeah, podcast. it's the inverse of do you have a minute to talk about your personal savior? <laughs> no, I'm giving you a minute to tell me about yours. No. <laughs> Well, as as we mentioned all the way back in the first segment of this episode, as Adam is the head of the natural body, as the head of the flesh, Christ has become our new head, and he is the head of the spiritual body of the church. And so as the head of the church, what happens to our head happens to the body, and because our head, Jesus Christ, 
has risen from the dead, has been vindicated by the Spirit. All of these things are also applied to us. Just as he has died and risen, so we also will die and rise in him. What happens to the head happens to the body. And that is our great hope as Christians to know that even though we still suffer in this life because of the sins visited upon you know, political bodies and all these other political heads, we have been set apart from the world and made a part of a new body. I mean, this is, this is the language of Ephesians 5, which I think will be mostly the focus of our last section here. So, Willie, do you want to pick up on that then? Well, Ephesians 5 is just going to very clearly say that Christ is the head of the church. Okay? Right. And that's also going to inform how we, who are heads of our families— are to treat one another. So before we move on to that particularly touchy issue for some, do we want to say anything more about Christ as head? I think we've established biblically the principle of headship. Do you want to say anything more about us being judged in Christ? Well, I mean, just just to say specifically that because he has been vindicated, because he has risen and is now alive forevermore, our sins, according to the old body, are no longer visited upon us. I think is is really the the key behind all of this. Although you could also point out, as Paul does, that the head of Christ is the Father. The Father himself is also the the head. Um, Christ himself is also has a head in the Father within the you know within the Trinity himself, which is a mystery. I'm not even going to try to unpack. Yeah, that I mean, one. we do confess that. We of course, <laughs> but but of course, we confess they are co-equal. Right. There's your mystery. Right. So. Let me read from Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. So before I get into that, what we have then is God is head over all, Adam head over all men, all men being judged according to their respective heads, but headship is also distilled down into basic units, not simply kings and and governors and things like that, but also down into the family unit, down into the church. The family is a picture of the church, as we're going to see. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, a lot to chew on there. Where do you even want to start, Will? <laughs> well, first things first, Christ is the head of the church. Okay. Right. There are other authorities within the church, but Christ is the shepherd. Okay. He is the good shepherd. He is the king over the church. He is the head. He is the ruler. So we know popes here. Now, that said, 
our relationship to him in submission, in obedience, in fidelity is reflected in the family. As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. That's not very third wave feminist there. Or fourth uh, wave or whatever wave whatever we're on now. And I don't whatever haircut we're on, I don't know. <laughs> but that is the picture of the wife submitting to the husband. And I'm so kind of tired of fighting against what frankly have become straw men in this day and age. You know, like a husband just going around beating the tar off of his wife because she burned dinner and all this. And, you know, they throw these canards out there as if they're true. One, that a wife is even home to cook is becoming something that doesn't exist anymore. You know, two, oftentimes it's the beatings are going the other way around or the abuse is going both ways. It's this, this text is so ignored because we want to go to either the worst examples of a husband or fictional examples of a husband. If a husband is to be Christ to his family, insofar as he is the head, what would that look like? Well, he would he would be ruling with love. He would be ruling according to God's word. And he would be gentle until he had to be stern, because that's what fathers do. If we don't understand this, if we really think that male headship in the family is meant for only brutish, boorish men, then of course we would reject it. But But that's a straw man. The Christian husband, who is head of his household, knows the Bible and knows how he ought to run his household. Do you, do you want to say anything about the role of husband in the house, Zelman? And I think you really have driven the point home that it's not that a husband has free reign to be a beast because, you know, he's the head. And, you know, just because, you know, I'm the head of this family, therefore my word is, you know, I can I can do whatever the heck I want and you, do, you can't tell me otherwise. This is this is really just more of a case of if we are to be Christ-like towards our family, we would look to Christ as our example about what that would mean. And he does not rule in terror. He does not rule in drunkenness. He does not rule in brutishly. Christ rules over his church in love and in self-sacrifice. It is a beautiful thing to see the Christian home. And I, and I hate that we that I always have to say things like, although it's imperfect, although we're all sinners, because you know that. You know that we fail at this. <laughs> what, do, does it make you feel better that I have to say this all the time? Were you really that worried that, to, you know, that the two Lutheran, <laughs> confessional Lutheran guys are going to go off the so far off the skids? I cannot be convinced that there is a better model for Christian families than a father and a mother raising children. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes because of sin. It's a single mom, it's a single dad, but that's not the ideal. And I'm not saying you're a bad mom because dad ran off or something like that. I'm simply saying that this is the ideal. This is how God has so set it up. And it is better for the children. It's better right. for the it's better for the husband. It's better for the wife. We we get so hung up on the the what abouts or the what ifs that we, we can't just say this is what God has established. Yes, there is brokenness. Yes, there things aren't always perfect. And yes, there are broken homes. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we should always be focusing on the, the what ifs and, the, you know, what abouts, but rather what does the word say? And give thanks for those times when we do have good examples of this happening and recognize that there is grace when it doesn't. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the best. I think that's the best way to go about it. You know, one of the things here that's people really balk at is verse 24. 
Now, as of the course. church submits to Christ, so also wives should should submit in everything to their husbands. Right. Now, now what does that mean, Zelwyn? I'm going to give that one to you. You're going to throw that at me. Thanks. Thanks, guy. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, is that because of all of the things going on in our society, the word submission has really taken on a uniquely negative character. We really reel against the idea of submitting to anything, not just a, a wife submitting to her husband, but the idea that the husband even submits to Christ, that I have to you know, submit myself also to another. And so we don't, we don't like the idea of being under anyone, let alone a wife under her husband. Yeah, because God wants me to do this. <laughs> the God who redeemed me and who saved me by grace through faith wants me to obey him. Sorry, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> How could I do that? Yeah, exactly. But the idea of a wife submitting to her husband is explicitly drawn to the church submitting to Christ. And that's not one of utter subjection, which is kind of the the idea that it's usually presented as, the, the canard that gets tossed around. It's not that Christ has the church under his thumb. What it means is that when the church submits to Christ as she is called to do when she you know obeys him as her lord she is living in in a relationship to him that god has set up that this is what this is what it means to have order to to listen to to love to cherish to do all of these things and that's also reflected within a christian marriage as well that the husband has been set as head over the family and what happens you know, to the head happens also to the body. But that doesn't mean that he's given some sort of free reign to abuse the body, which is you know, the way it's always caricatured. He has been given as God's gift to support and to lift up and build up that body, the, the small body of the family, right? Right. Now I'm going to throw it back to you. We didn't ask any questions, no. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is a lie that society and these malevolent forces, which we've talked about in previous episodes, want you to believe that you are more fulfilled working 60, 80 hours a week for some soulless corporation, for some middle manager, than you would be serving your family at home. Or as a male, you're taught that you are to pursue your own goals simply for selfish means. And they teach women that too. They teach male and female to live separate lives so that they may just be good producers and to enjoy whatever consumer products that they want. I don't think they're taught to be producers at all. I think we're just living a purely consumerist lifestyle. Well, I mean, produce for the company, not produce for home. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, produce simply for the sake of the employer. That, right. that, that we're somehow more free if we serve the employer primarily. So it's okay to submit to Apple computers. It's okay to submit to whatever ink you work for, but not okay to submit to your husband. Not okay even to submit to your God, because we're going to have you work every religious holiday that we can. It is an interesting phenomenon that they have taught you that, and that you have bought into that. There is a sense of fulfillment that the married Christian couple has knowing that even though they might not have as much, they are sacrificing for the sake of God and they are living according to his precepts. It's the same way with raising Christian children. To raise Christian children 
in this day and age and in the nation even in which we live, although it's not as hard as some, but to raise Christian children today is difficult and going to get more difficult. But it is work worth doing. And we can only raise them according to what our Lord says if we actually do what our Lord says. We need a father. We need a mother. We need a father that mirrors Christ in the home. We need a family that mirrors the church. And through strong Christian families, we have strong Christian congregations. And so that small nuclear family influences the whole family that is the church, particularly in the local congregation. It is just profoundly disturbing to me what we have taught young men and women about what is good in life and what is best in life. We're so much closer to Conan the Barbarian than we are to Jesus Christ. And I hate that I even have to slight Conan there. It pains (laughs) me to do so. But it it cannot all be just amalgamation and capital, people. I mean, it is a cliche. You can't take it with you, but you, you will die one day. And what do you want to leave after you? A healthy bank account? The latest iPhone? Or do you want to leave behind the children that God has given you and die knowing that they know the Lord God and rest securely in Christ Jesus, their head? As the symbols of headship have gone in the church and even in society, as the differences between men and women continue to be eroded, we are going to lose the very bedrock of what makes us not only Christian, you know, not only faithful, but what makes us human. We become so much more like the farm animals we consume quickly made products than we are being real human beings. The further we are from God, the less human we are. You know, the further we are from family, the further we are from God, and ergo, the less human we are. We don't say all the all these things in this podcast just to simply you know, beat you down. And we're not trying to sound, we went out of our way not to sound like like a Pat Robertson kind of 700 club appeal to a Christian <laughs> governor or anything. That's not what, what we want. We we believe in a true and living God. And we believe that what God ordains is always good, but that we also believe that what God commands is good. Right. And that even though we sometimes suffer because of the sinful masses, that that by and large, God sustains us when we, when we are living, you know, this life. That's a lot of piety at the end of coming up on the end of the episode, Zell, and I'm sorry. Do you want to... Don't apologize for it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I sound like the the angry old man here, but it, it really is true. We lose so much when we neglect to understand the principle of headship and what it means to have a strong head and to have the right head. First and foremost, I mean that we have to have Jesus Christ as our head. We want to be judged in him because we're all sons of Adam. If we want to rescue or you know rejuvenate the family in our society, husbands should look to Christ to find the example that he has set for them. Wives should look to the church for the example that she sets for them. And when we live in the way that God would have us live, and the patterns of order that he has established in his creation— things will be better, even even in just a purely temporal sense, even in just a purely, you know, almost secular sense, things will go better. There won't be division at the heart of marriages. There won't be a constant striving for the vain things of this world. There will simply be what God has established to be, and that God's ways are always best. I, I really don't know how else to put it. 
I kind of just want to, it puts you in mind of 1 John 5, 3 to 5, doesn't it? Right. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is also the the language of Ecclesiastes, too. You know, fear God. I, I know I've used this before. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When we live the way that God would have us live, in the fear of him, and also reflect that fear in the way that we order our families, our nations, everything about our society, when we fear the, the living God, we find something that is actually of lasting value, something that actually gives us a true sense of what it means to not chase after the wind, because everything else is going to be, it will end up chasing after the wind, it'll end up being vain and nothing. But when we seek after God and try, and strive to keep his commandments and live the way that he would have us live, then we are doing something that actually will bring lasting happiness and eternal joy, especially when he comes to bring us all to, to himself. Very good. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ.